Hi there, Neil here. Obviously, you love to travel. That's why you're listening to this podcast. Circa, our app available right now from the App Store on iOS, is filled with podcasts and guides for travelers. But more than that, it has a feature that we're calling the Circa Concierge, where you can have any question about any place you're traveling answered by real people on the ground. We're giving you a friend to ask anywhere in the world. And hey, if you've got questions about Barcelona, you might even get me. Because I love to help people discover my city. And if you're the same way for the city where you live, then we want you to become part of the Circa Concierge too. Right now, we're searching for concierges in Barcelona, Rome, London, Paris, Madrid, Venice, and New York City. Don't see your city listed? That's okay. We'll be rolling out new cities throughout the year, and yours might just be next. If you love where you live and love to help travelers, sign up now to be a Circa Concierge. Help out our users and earn tips for the knowledge you have about your own city or country. Head over to circatravel.com forward slash concierge and sign up today. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. You've always been the host here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to take this edit away and <laughs> correct it. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> a destination isn't always a place. Sometimes it's a new way of seeing things. I'm Neil Innes. And I'm Andres Bartos. From Frequency Machine, this is Passport. Your ticket to everywhere. Sometime in the spring of 2006, I found myself in Bangor, Maine. I was standing outside a big red and white colonial mansion, black gates stylistically fashioned and shaped with spider webs and bats. The house itself seemed to be slanted, like a cartoon drawn by a kid. It was the house of Stephen King. Off to the side is a gate for cars with a buzzer and a label saying push button to call. I pushed. Hello, Mr. King. And then a voice, almost singing the word. As a kid, Stephen King upset me, in a good way. Not in that 26-year-old, standing rejected outside of some scary gates kind of way. I slept with the light on for a long time after I read Salem's Lot, and longer when I read Pet Cemetery. I lasted the first 10 minutes of the IT TV miniseries before running home, crying in the rain. 
Stephen King wired my brain weird. And of course, I'm not alone. 61 novels, five nonfiction books, and more than 200 short stories. Of the 50 film adaptations so far, and more than two dozen in production right now, nothing seems to have etched itself into the mind of people quite like The Shining. The thing is that all the haunting images from The Shining in all of its forms can be traced back to one point in time. One night in late September, or so the story goes, in 1974, and to one place too, the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, Colorado. Today on Passport and our Haunted Stories series, we go there to revisit one night which still terrifies and inspires the creative world. I mean, you've like lost your mind, basically, <laughs> for the last at least two weeks. I don't think you could talk about anything that wasn't Stephen King related. Yeah, no. It's, it's kind of nice, though. It's nice to see like you go off the deep end. I did. I totally did. I reread the book. I reread Stephen King's book about writing. I read the Kubrick Archives book. Well, you have this thing with Stephen King, man. Yeah, I didn't realize that I did. But you really do, more than anyone I know. I was trying to work it out. I think I've read about 60% of his work. That's insane. Yeah. When we used to have bookshops, <laughs> I remember that there would always be like a setup. One table was like the new Stephen King book. And I was always like, there's <laughs> yeah. another one? Exactly. I mean, and then you think about the, the, his work that is not Stephen King. In the, in the mind of the world, like people don't think about the Shawshank Redemption, right. they don't right. think about Stand By Me. Yeah. And then you kind of think to yourself, well, shit, you know, there's, this guy, he's had every single thing he's ever done option. Yeah. Plus all of his short stories. Yeah. I always, I always have the same impression, I'm like, ah, oh, Stephen King. And then you start reading it and you're like, oh, I forgot. Yeah. I forgot. Or you don't stop reading it. That's yeah. the problem that I always used to have. But what you were saying before, though, the, like, the pop culture impact is insane. It's just, it's just tuned into everybody's brain, even if you know it or, or don't. It's endless. It is endless. This story is one part your unrequited love for Stephen King. Yes, very he's, unrequited. He's not interested, Neil. <laughs> Stop calling. <laughs> when even like, oh, what was that? Is that Harriet f***ing with us? Yeah, is that outside? Harriet? Harry? <laughs> Are they gone? Okay. All right. <laughs> Let's see how this goes. Yeah, I've got a little goosebumps now. Too. But the, this is a perfect segue, as I was saying before, we were interrupted by the ghost that we have in this yes. recording session. Um, one, <laughs> one part of this is your unrequited love for Stephen King. But then the other part is, can I not talk about it? <laughs> it sounds like someone's dragging a body. It's never happened in never. five, what, five months we've been here? Yeah. Anyhow, um, <laughs> one side's the unrequited love. The other side is this movie that probably is one of the most important movies for you and me, yeah. which is The Shining. Yeah. And I mean, you know, and the most unknown 
attributing factor to both mm-hmm. is an unknown hotel. Really, I mean, around the world, it's unknown. Yeah. Because of the film. Yeah. Because the overlook is like, I can have it in my head yeah. as we're talking. And the tricycle, yeah. <laughs> the carpet, the twins. Yeah. As soon as I started looking at Colorado now, I was like, this is no place for a horror story. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's just, just too nice. It's just weed and it's just tech sunny. guys and microbreweries <laughs> and everyone's just lovely. <laughs> So uh, yeah, I had to. It was tough to find a way in, but I found a doozy. <laughs> Ooh! All right. When you started, you had in your mind the Stanley was the Overlook. For all extensive purposes, the Stanley is the Overlook. Right. Yeah. But in your in your brain space, I got to be honest. The one I always think about, even when I was rereading King's book, yeah, is Kubrick's fucking hotel. Of course. But then when I did see, when I, when I was looking at Colorado and when I looked at this hotel, yeah. I was like, wow, like that's the place? That's where it happened. This is the old haunted hotel? This is the hotel that changed movie history as well as literature. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> In his beautiful nonfiction book on writing, Stephen King tells us, Start with character, write it and write it until you know it and then throw it away so you can be free to do what you want. So let's do that to Colorado. Welcome to the highest overall state in the USA. Denver, Colorado lays claim to the invention of the cheeseburger. It's the only state in history to turn down the Olympics in 1976. It held the world's first rodeo in 1869. More than one-third of the state is government-owned. Colfax Avenue in Denver is the longest continuous street in the country. It's also home to the world's largest hot spring, the International Church of Cannabis, numerous official UFO watchtowers, and maybe the world's only washing machine museum. Colorado is both ass-backwards bonkers weird and mind-blowingly beautiful. It's a strange, high, gorgeous place, which now runs on tech, craft beer, and marijuana. Three things they do incredibly well. But for the rest of the world, receiving postcards, the great outdoors dominate Colorado. Fishing, kayaking, climbing, hiking, skiing, biking, and boating. But wait, this doesn't sound like a horror story, does it? All right, forget all that. Um, let's go here. King also said, the most important thing to remember about backstory is that everyone has a history and most of it isn't very interesting. Stick to the parts that are, life stories are best received in bars an hour or so before closing time and only if you're buying. So just imagine we're at a bar somewhere and it's snowy and I'm buying. A horror story should have a traumatic history. So let's start sometime in the mid-1800s. Let's start with a rich man, a dream, maybe an infectious disease. All right, let's start with tuberculosis. Back then, they called them lungers. By the 1860s, they were everywhere in Colorado, suffering hordes heading to the mountains for clean air. Before TB, the place was a haven for criminals, trappers, 
and miners, thanks to a series of gold and silver rushes. The small towns were riddled with drunkenness, gambling, prostitution, and crime. But then slowly, over time, Colorado was a place filled with physicians and doctors, learned people, and successful businessmen. Freeland Oscar Stanley was one of them. F.O. Stanley made his fortune in photographic plates, a precursor to film, before he and his brother founded the Stanley Motor Carriage Company. And they built steam-powered automobiles. And they did good business. At the turn of the 19th century, at 57 years old, Freeland contracted TB for the second time in his life. And so Colorado's clean air suddenly smelled pretty good. He fell in love with it, especially Estes Park, a small town in the foothills of the Rockies. And in 1907, he began construction of a resort for upper-class East Coasters, a health retreat for sufferers just like him. It opened on the 4th of July in 1909. This hotel was kind of a technological marvel for the time. No expense was spared. Steam, hydraulics, and electricity were used throughout. Stanley's highfalutin friends could golf and bowl and horseback ride, while at night in the concert hall, there were tuxedos and ball gowns and thick cigar smoke and billiards. For a while, Freeland Oscar Stanley was the Jay Gatsby of Colorado. He sold the hotel in 1930, and he died 10 years later at the ripe old age for any time of 91. Turns out the Rocky Mountain air is good for you. A lot of people think because it's called Estes Park, it's a park. It's actually a town, and the Stanley Hotel dominates it. It's just a drop-dead gorgeous location. This is Rebecca F. Pittman ex-runway model, teacher, journalist, author, and painter. She's written many books on hauntings and histories of old American buildings, including the Stanley Hotel. It goes way back to Indian tribes. There's still some ruins you can see from wars, Indian wars, the trappers, the prospectors. It's just an incredible place. And so I was up there a couple of times a month and was surprised no one had written a comprehensive book about the hotel. Now, the Stanley Hotel stands as bright as ever, a Georgian shard of spectacular white with a blood-red roof. It's listed on the U.S. National Register of Historic Places, and it caters now for weddings, parties, anything and more. It has four different accommodation options spread across multiple buildings, lodges, and more permanent residences. But how much of the hotel's sheen is down to the success of the film and the book? I asked Rebecca, and it turns out that she had asked the owner, John Cullen. He said this would not be the first hotel that was saved by a hit movie. And I think that's that's quite a comment to make. And The Shining definitely put it on the map. It really did. The beauty of this place and its wild success is sometimes overshadowed by something else. Not King, not Kubrick. The Stanley is haunted, of course. When I was there, Mary Orton was the head tour guide, Scary Mary. And the things that happened around her, Neil, 
if I hadn't witnessed them, I wouldn't have believed them. And she would comment that the ghost children at the hotel, and they're the most reported haunting, or people hearing children in the hallway, which inspired King, I'm guessing. But she said, they're here right now. And I looked and you could see a little handprint press into her skirt. I suddenly regret doing this recording session so late. (laughs) (laughs) I was here talking to her alone. I'd done all of these interviews alone in this building. Just in the dark. I mean, even if you don't believe in ghosts. That's scary. Yeah, it just, it gets, gives you the willies, man. I don't know what it is about little, like, ghost children. It's, yeah. That's particularly... It's particularly bad kids. And that's where Stephen King lives. Like, it's making you remember what you were when you were little and what you were afraid of. Right. That's, I quickly realized that that the Stanley is one of the most haunted places in America. (laughs) Didn't really understand just how Mm. haunted Mm. it is. (laughs) I mean, it's got all the pieces America, prospectors, yeah, you know, Indian burial grounds, yes, yeah. the whole nine yards. I mean that that when I when I talk, when I talked to her when I found out it went back that far and why it existed, yeah, it was, it was built to save people from death, and I was just like, oh, this is gonna be good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but wait. This is something we, so we've, we've hit the King. We've hit a little bit of the Kubrick. The thing I haven't hit is, do you believe in ghosts, Neil Innes? No. Right. I believe, I very much believe that other people do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, and have seen things, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I think ghosts have a lot to do with your memory, your memory. I was going to say, That's where ghosts live. if I ascribe to anything that places have memory, that maybe we project stuff on that, but... I think that's totally true. When bad stuff has happened in a place, some of that somehow just kind of lingers there. And Stephen King has this, this great line. He said that ghosts and monsters are real. They live inside us. Ah. Sometimes they win. Oh, nice. Yeah. Oh, that's good. The, that's why I love horror. Okay. It's, it's that thing where... You can watch a man run around with an axe and murder high school kids by a lake or whatever. But All that's day. that's not horror, you know. No, not really. Like digging up your kid and putting him in a pet cemetery in the hopes that he would come back to life. That's horror. That's horror. Because it, the horror is losing a kid. And what it drives you to do. Yes. And that's, you know, part of the reason that horror is has was so bad for so long <laughs> and then and then good and then so bad yeah. <laughs> and then good it's because people keep re-remembering this thing you know it's got to be good drama or it's not good it's not good horror because otherwise yeah if it's just boobs in a truck and then a dude with a hockey mask <laughs> it's fun it's a lot of fun but it's not gonna get into that reptilian brain because all of this yes. 
all of that stuff, the feelings you have in a hotel at a certain hour of night, yeah, the movies yeah. that make you freak out. It's all that reptile brain, that yeah. thing that's telling you, you should not be here right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and also the thing where it's three days later mm. and you're like, oh, I shouldn't have watched that. <laughs> now, I, now I know. And that, that's the shining. <laughs> that's the shining. That's the shining. There's, there's scenes that I know they're coming and they still have yeah. effect. It has this giddiness to it that's also funny. Mm, right. It's like that laughter. When you get so scared, you start yeah, laughing. Absolutely. And when things get rich at fever pitch. After the break, that one haunted night at the Stanley Hotel and what happens when a moment of inspiration grows into the most iconic horror film of all time. See you in a minute. Hi everyone, Circa is recruiting new concierges. A Circa concierge is a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, on the ground, never bots. If you want to be a concierge for your city, go to circatravel.com to sign up. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. The Stanley is always known about. Obviously, I have a lot of background in like being super into the supernatural of all types and varieties. And so that was sort of the iconic haunted spot. This is Carl Pfeiffer, a true horror lover. Back when I was, we've got this wonderful thunderstorm going on outside right now. It's very appropriate. So. <laughs> uh, there was just quite a blast right there. Set in the mood. <laughs> Carl is a writer, ghost hunter, and filmmaker. I think it's it's a cool way to illustrate the history of a place, you know? Like, I think that the, the idea of ghosts brings that history alive to the present. For this story, he covers all bases. He's close to the place, too. Where are you now, man? I'm in Colorado still, so I'm still only about 45 minutes from the Stanley or so. It's still got its hooks in you. Yeah, to, to have just kind of a, a historic hotel from a hundred years ago that carries that kind of a weight now where it's not just a landmark of Northern Colorado. It's a very unique, distinct landmark in probably the better part of the country. Carl has a strange history with the Stanley Hotel and with ghosts. In fact, they offered him his big break in a way. I was just like always into the dark and creepy kind of stuff. So I, I just ate up everything I could about aliens and then ghosts. And when I was in high school and college, that's when the Ghost Hunters fad kind of took off. And so I was kind of at a, a good spot to build kind of a ramshackle career on these topics of the paranormal because they're in the zeitgeist right now. He won the first season of Sci-Fi's Ghost Hunters Academy. Carl is a King mega fan too. And it was the cover of one of the author's books, which intrigued him. The cover of it was like so iconic to me as a little kid, seeing that like in the box in the basement that I was like, with the creepy claw coming out of the drain, I was like, that looks awesome. One time he found himself on a ghost tour of the Stanley 
and ended up just staying as the resident paranormal investigator. Yep, that's how haunted. In, in all, in five years, I spent about 250 nights at the Stanley Hotel doing paranormal investigations, um, which <laughs> the number still blows me away. It's amazing. Carl knows the Stanley's legendary status more than most. The main building would be sitting uh, at the top most proudly, and then beside it was kind of a slightly smaller version, uh, the manor house, and then slightly further from there is the concert hall. It's continuing to expand with these white and red properties uh, all over the ground is it, now. Is that is that ghost money? <laughs> <laughs> from a spa which healed the lungers, a sanctuary, a modern icon of a state, to the beautiful, sprawling luxury retreat it is now, it would seem like it was always smooth sailing for the Stanley Hotel, but that's not exactly the case. The war years weren't good for the old place. The 50s and 60s saw it switching hands, and with dwindling numbers, the place fell into disrepair. Back in the 70s, even in the 60s, it was just kind of a an old, decrepit resort hotel. All of the buildings on the property were condemned except for the main building, so it was, it was in a state. In 1974, the hotel turned 65 years old. Stephen King, at the time, was 26. He was in a bit of a state too. His mother, Nellie Ruth Pillsbury King, a constant support in his life as a writer, had just passed away. His drinking habit had developed into a bit of a monster. He was drunk as he read his own mother's eulogy. But in all this darkness, he had four novels written and ready to go. A novel called Carrie was the first to be published. But from one moment to the next, everything changed. During a phone call from his agent on Mother's Day, King went from an alcoholic struggling teacher, living in a trailer, to having Doubleday buy and option his first book for $400,000. King, according to his flimsy contract, got half. 200 grand, about $1.1 million in today's money. For the Kings, it was time for a change. So Stevie and his wife and fellow author Tabitha King blindly put a pin in a map of the USA, or so the story goes. That pin landed firmly in Colorado. After years of financial struggle, The Shining was the first book that King wrote with money in the bank. He was a drunk schoolteacher and father living in a double-wide trailer who hit the big time. He was living in Boulder. He was trying to come up with some idea of a family being stuck in an environment they couldn't get out of, and he couldn't get it to work. King had found that rarest of things in the publishing world. A golden ticket. He had one of the most incredible imaginations on earth, but he decided not to go for the epic. He went small. He went personal. He decided to write a novel about a drunk, struggling schoolteacher who fails to hit the big time and attempts to murder his family. It became an epic anyway, all because of a pin in a map. When um, he decided to go on a short road trip, 
with his wife and see a little bit of the area. And they were heading up to Rocky Mountain National Park and found out it was closed because of snow. Turned around and were coming back and they saw the hotel and they went, well, what's that? They walked in and the guy said, well, this is the last day of the season. Uh, we're shutting down. And he, he said, we can't spend the night. He goes, well, you could spend the night tonight, but literally most of the staff have gone. So they went up and they gave him room 217. Being there in that mostly empty hotel was where the, the setting shifted. It said that he had a nightmare. That night, the author dreamed of his son screaming, running through the halls of an empty hotel, being chased by a fire hose with bloodied metal teeth. And legendarily, you know, sat by the window with the cigarette. And by the time he was done, he had the, the story sketched out in his mind. A 20-something-year-old man staring out of the window of room 217, smoking a cigarette, thinking of his kids, ghosts, his wife sleeping in the bed. In the last 10 years, something of a resurgence of a theme has happened in horror films. Trauma, family, racial allegories, relationships, paternal worries, they've all made a thematic comeback in the world of the scary. Rosemary's Baby, The Exorcist, Don't Look Now, The Omen, Wicker Man, even A Razorhead, and The Shining have all influenced a slew of recent filmmakers, from Ari Aster, Jennifer Kent, Jordan Peele, to Robert Eggers. There are films now that kind of treat the real thing, the real struggle as the monster, which is kind of what The Shining was. Very much. That's why King didn't really care for the, uh, the Kubrick movie was because for him, it was so much about the family and so much about Jack and yeah. his struggle with his demons and the movie for him, he was just kind of like, it was just Jack Nicholson. Like he's, he's always been kind of crazy from the get go, you know, like that's <laughs> yeah. not the story. The story is, is his struggles. King called Kubrick's film, a beautiful Cadillac with no engine. He called it misogynistic and cold. Jack seemingly had little struggle. His Wendy, the role which Shelley Duvall played had been reduced to a whimpering, crying mess. And to be fair, it wasn't just an author lamenting the killing of his darling. The film at the time was almost universally panned. Shelley Duvall, Jack Nicholson, and the great untouchable Stanley Kubrick took heavy fire. It's almost unthinkable now. But hang on, wait. Let's go back to the other Stanley, the hotel. Let's go back to room 217. We were coming out of room 217 and the rest of the group went up to the third landing and they were paused by the banister. And I stopped and turned around to ask Mary something and I jumped. I had on a tube top, a sleeveless top, and it felt like something had burned something into my bare shoulder. And when I gasped and jumped, the people above me with their cameras all shot pictures of me. And there was this green orb the size of a soccer ball with a tail, like a tendril, coming out of it, going across my throat. And she goes, I think that was Sarah. <laughs> I said, 
Who's Sarah? She said she was a nanny in the 1900s, and she was six feet tall, which was quite tall for a woman back then, and I'm six foot two. And she says, I think she saw you as a kindred spirit. (laughs) I said, well, couldn't you just say hi? (laughs) For all those people thinking I mean 237, well, we've hit the break point in the legacy of The Shining, between the one that lives on the page and the one that lives on the screen. You just gave me the chills, man. <laughs> oh. It's just such a weird, like, I love those stories of, like, the time that, you know. Keith and, Richards falling asleep, waking up, and he <laughs> recorded uh, Satisfaction, I think recorded the whole of Exile on Main Street. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, man. Those, I love those. I just uh, love those stories. Yeah, where, where, like, something just drops out of the sky. And you're just there, and you catch it. Yeah, and it had this. Had, this had kind of happened to King already. I yeah. mean, his wife picked Carrie out of the bin. <laughs> you know, the the novel that made him a household name. He hated it. He he'd thrown it away. He came home, and she was like, "Steve, this is this, yeah. this is good." And he's like, "She's the biggest loser. I've like created the biggest loser of all time." Yeah, but that's why we love her. <laughs> yeah, but and how the king was like, need to finish, just finish it, just finish it. Right. He hit the hit the fucking big time. He just hit it. How disaster is just you know, <laughs> one phone call away. Exactly. Yeah. Or the lack of a phone call away. <laughs> oh man, because I didn't know this piece of information that when The Shining happened was already on the way out from, you know, Stephen King in uh, Trailer Park. Yeah, it was the first time he was a writer. But that's it. Just the, a writer. The monster of the book, like what you're going to do next, yeah, is yeah. such a big part of yeah. The Shining. It Writing. Is, yeah. You have to write. I mean, he just must have been terrified. He didn't want to fuck anything up. So he basically wrote a story about himself yeah. and what might have happened if he hadn't have got that phone call yeah that's real horror like that worry yeah oh man yeah and now and now kubrick shows up yeah (laughs) to fuck things up for steven make all those (laughs) corners square (laughs) a singular moment yeah just an accident yeah ending up at this place this time yeah yeah and then the, just the the feeling of being there and transferring it into this thing well it's funny because that based on the kind of time frame this the, the owners and stuff that i've looked at 1974 mm. it would have been almost closed when 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 king and and his wife stayed there that one night and it was the last night it was like wait, end of October. Wait, you're saying to me they arrived the last night the hotel would have been opened? Yeah. It's now open all year, all year round, but then it closed for the winter and they had a living caretaker. Oh, come on. And so every as they were arriving, all the staff were leaving, oh, all of my. the chairs were up. They were the only guests there. You know, he went to the bar, the the, the, the manager served him drinks. and He was the only person at the bar, of he course. He was the in only person in this huge, like, ornate, beautiful bar. Because it's big. Yeah. It really is. And then he stumbled back to bed. And he was, the, the, the idea that he had had 
this family in isolation was going to originally be an th- a abandoned theme park mm-hmm. that they were taking down. <laughs> and he's like, it's not, it's never going to work because no, you, just, you can walk out. Yeah. And no, you need a place that we're, mountains, you yeah. get snowed in and you're trapped. Snowed in and you're trapped and you're with your family. And he was like, um, serendipity. That's insane, man. <laughs> yeah. It's freaking wild. Also, as you're telling me this, Overlook is in my head the whole time. <laughs> I've just seen the actual Stanley, it's and still- I can't. I I have Stephen King in the lobby with the carpeting. Yeah, it's the whole thing. It's insane. It never it never goes away. <laughs> you Cooper, it's, yeah, it's like brain tattoo. Yeah, it totally. Is. You can't get it out of your head. It's yeah. It's like it's the equivalent of like seeing Max Shrek walk down those stairs in Nosferatu. Right. Yeah. With his hand out. With the hand, the, the long fingers. And it's the same watching Danny and his big wheel right around the hallway. It's I can just, hear it. Yeah. The sound of the wheels coming off the carpet <laughs> and then going quiet yeah. and coming off the carpet. Yeah. <sighs> <laughs> so which is, which is the legacy? What should be the legacy? Oh, man. Yeah. It's complicated. <laughs> Are you going to answer this or are you just going to leave me hanging? <laughs> Maybe I'm going to answer something. <laughs> I'm going to answer some yeah. questions. It's definitely not going to be a phone call from Stephen fucking. <laughs> <laughs> I think if you actually had a chat with him, you guys would ha- get along. You just got to get past the, the nerd gate. <laughs> <laughs> this is what this episode is. It's 55 minutes of me trying to jump the nerd gate. <laughs> Will Neil make it Trying over the nerd gate? Crack my balls on the top <laughs> rung. I mean, in the office, we've been watching you go at it. It's <laughs> it's been impressive, man. Coming up in part two, the tale of the Stanley Hotel continues with more King versus Kubrick. The artist still influenced by the horror of the film and the heart of the book. We'll talk to the frontmen of Murder by Death and Davochka, two bands who have embraced the legacy of this horror. Plus, the version of The Shining you don't know. And Rodney Asher, director of The Bonkers Room 237, tells us a story you wouldn't believe. In the meantime, you can follow us on all social media at Passport Podcast, and be sure to rate and review the show wherever you're listening. See you soon. This week's show was written, produced, and edited by me. Big thanks to Rebecca F. Pittman and Carl Pfeiffer for helping us to make this first part of the show. You can find more about them in the show notes. Our theme tune is by the incredible Nick Turner, with original music for this week's show coming from my friend and genius, Ben Chatwin. Definitely go check him out wherever you get your music. Other bits and bobs by Rochelle Rochelle, Carlton Banksy, and The Regal Beagle. The show is mixed and mastered by Julian Kuzneski. Eliza Engel is our production assistant. Stacey Book, Dominic Ferrari, and Abby Glijansky want to play with us forever and ever and ever and ever. They also executive produce the show, which is hosted by me and a man who is the best goddamn bartender from Timbuktu to Portland, Maine, or Portland, Oregon, for that matter. Andres Bartos. We'll see you in the same place for part two.